From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, happy first Friday of Lent to each and every one of you. Uh, It's EWTN's Open Line Friday. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, has foregone his own retreat that he is hosting to be with you on EWTN's Open Line Friday. That's quite a sacrifice, Colin. Um, I'll take your. <laughs> That's word exactly for it. the word I was looking for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to, if you'd like to get an equally dazzling answer from Colin <laughs> to your question, give us a call at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one two zero five. Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, open line at ewtn.com, or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jack. That's and a better I'm, answer. I'm, you know, I wish I could do both, but I love our <laughs> audience. I love what I do on Fridays and Whenever possible, as EWTN tries to do in all of his live programming, to be here for those such programs. As soon as you get bi-locating down, uh, we'll be all set. Nobody has offered me that possibility, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> hey, we're going to break from our norms of, uh, of emptying out the mailbag a little bit here in this first segment today. Adam in Fort Wayne, Indiana is a first-time caller, and he has been holding for 43 minutes since the end of the last program since well before the end of the last program, I want to reward his patience right. by taking his the, call first thing right off the bat. It doesn't substitute for abstinence, but it gets awfully close. It's very good. Adam, thank you for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Wonderful. Um, i got an easy question. It shouldn't take very long. I just want a definition on liturgy and how it differs from the liturgy of the Mass and like the liturgy of the hours. Okay. And I'll hang up and listen on the radio. Very good. Uh, a liturgy is, well, I could give you a long, uh, paragraph-long definition by a great theologian from the 50s, Cyprian uh, uh, Vagagini, on what the liturgy is. He spoke of it's a constellation of signs which point to, the, of course, the mysteries that are reflected in, in, in the liturgy. And so all the things that make that up, we think of the vestments, the candles, the uh, the liturgical words, the forms, the, the, the material elements, and so on. But in the church's mind, the liturgy is public worship. And so the Mass is a liturgy because it's a public celebration of the sacraments by a minister of the church who is 
uh, uh, has that responsibility and the orders that make it possible. The sacramental liturgies represent the public worship of the church. Now, we think of those things as maybe more pointing to us. Well, I'm being baptized or I'm being confirmed or whatever. But the idea of worship is that we are going to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit and through that representative who, who represents Christ and act in his place, whether it's the formal case of the priest acting in persona Christi or another member of the church, since as a, a, a you know, even a lay person doing an emergency baptism is representing the church and truly baptizes in that situation. So those are liturgies. The liturgy of the hours is a liturgy of the church because it is the worship of the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. It's done by priests formally as part of their uh, responsibilities, by deacons as well. They're obliged to the uh, divine office. And the various religious orders using, whether they're using a Benedictine form or the Roman form, as so many do, the Roman Liturgy of the Hours, they likewise are are worshiping. So the, the praise and petition on behalf of the church as members of the church in an official capacity that's what constitutes those things as a liturgy. Now, when you go to the church and the priest leads the rosary or some rite which is not strictly liturgical, it's not in the liturgical books, uh, the Stations of the Cross, for example, those aren't liturgies. Those are devotional acts, whether they're done by the Pope or whether they're done by you and me. So that would distinguish public worship from a private devotion uh, which, although it's sanctioned by the church and encouraged by the church, is not the church herself, as it were, as a corporate act doing that act of worship or devotion. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Michelle would like to know, what are Catholics' beliefs on the rapture, and what's the best way of explaining that to a Protestant? Uh, the Catholics, uh, Catholics certainly do believe in the rapture, and there's that seizing up, as St. Paul uses the expression in, in Thessalonians, the seizing up of the church to meet Christ when he comes again in glory, glory uh, in the clouds. Now, the Protestant theology the, of this has pushed all of that away from the end of the world. The fathers of the church, the long tradition of the fathers and doctors in the magisterium of the church is that at the end of the world, there will be this final confrontation between good and evil, which Christ himself will permanently destroy the evil, banishing it to hell forever, and the good he will take to heaven. And some of the good will be alive at the time, at the time this happens, and others of them will already have pre preceded the rest of us in death or whoever is alive at that time. And those who are alive will be caught up and seized up to the Lord, and to meet him in the clouds, and of course, this is the final consummation of all things. The new heavens and the new earth and eternity begins. Protestant theology, since the Reformation, has pushed that back, seeing in the thousand-year reign of, of the church, or the thousand-year reign given in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, seeing that as a temporal period of reign on the earth. Now, the church, since at least Augustine, has seen that as the church age. In other words, between the first and the second coming, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit as the soul of the church, will continue on the mission of Christ to evangelize the world and bring people to salvation in Jesus Christ and finally to the kingdom 
uh, as St. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. So that action the Church sees at the end of the world, that Reformation theology, uh, and relatively new, uh, the last 200 years or so, uh, in some versions of, of Protestant theology, but not all, it has, pushes that period back to Christ reigning on the earth in Israel for a period of a thousand years. Uh, and as a consequence of that, it sort of severs the historical connection of the church to history, and it makes it about a special group of people who will uh, be with Christ during that reign. And then somehow Christ goes away and the devil is able to uh, carry on his last attack, which leads then to the, uh, to the final battle at the end of the world. The church doesn't see that happening. Jesus is not going to come and then go away or anything like that. But rather, the church will pursue the struggle in time and in place on his behalf as instructed until the end of the, until the, end of the church era. And the end of the church era will be the end of, of, of history. And at that time, Christ will reign forever. As St. Paul says in a very significant passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ must reign until he has put all things under his feet. That takes place at the end of the world. And then it's all sort of caught up in him uh, as we see the church being caught up. And we have the new heavens and the new earth. We have the new Jerusalem in heaven and everything then that kingdom is laid down at the feet of the Father. So the idea of 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 a rapture at some time before that, before the end of the world, that somehow takes the church out of suffering, as many approaches to that rapture view does, uh, really isn't consistent with the gospel, that we must take up our cross and follow him, that the church should be spared something which the Lord himself undertook, to suffer and to die for the sake of salvation of souls. And so the church will go through a passion at the end of history, as Christ did at the end of his life. But it will end up in glory at the end of history, as Christ did at the end of his life. And that's what I think we're all looking for. It's also since the early church been uh, covered by, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And that happens at the end and not any time before. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, next, we go to Jeff, who is in Superior, Wisconsin, listening on Real Presence Radio. Jeff, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, good afternoon. I have a question about uh, the Blessed Sacrament. Can you hear me okay? We can indeed. Okay. So I was at a conference recently, and a priest 
at the halfway point said, well, we're going to expose the Blessed Sacrament, and it was in a high school, and I was like, whoa, uh, why is that here? Uh, doesn't it belong in a church? And I was educated. I called the Archdiocese of Chicago. I was so shocked, because I thought the monstrance containing the host and the Blessed Sacrament belonged in a church, and it was, I mean, in a sanctuary. To me, that's where it belongs. But I'm told that there's a new theology where you can take it out on the streets and you can bring it to places, and, you know, it's like, uh, you know, a road trip. Is what, Can you tell me something about the theology behind that? Sure. Um, it's not new at all. I mean, it's probably new to Americans because we live in an insular world and surrounded by uh, Protestants and secular people and non-Catholics. We're not used to a lot of rituals which would be common uh, in in Europe, in the small towns. So the idea of the Euchar- Eucharistic procession through a town or a village is a, a very uh, a very common thing. Uh, I lived in Portugal for a year before going to uh, finish my studies in Rome, and there they have a very long tradition going certainly back before World War II and before the modern period and so on where in Easter week, the priest would take the Blessed Sacrament and they would process through a village. And in the course of the week, they would go into every home and bless every home. And this was considered a great uh, a great privilege. Uh, you can imagine we, we have the Father, we may have Father come to our house with holy water and bless salt. We may do the, the, the chalk, the blessing for the three kings and so on ourselves as, with blessed chalk as we do. But to have the Eucharist come into the home. So in Europe, this is nothing foreign at all. In America, I think because we're in a a society, a society which up until, you know, some people would say up until John Kennedy even, uh, there was a considerable bias against Catholicism because of the Protestant-Catholic divide. And so we're just not familiar with what in a European context would be uh, more more common. Now, the idea of exposition, the idea of procession goes back to the Middle Ages, uh, the, the theology that Christ is uh, really received is present when we receive Holy, the Holy Eucharist, uh, certainly goes back to the very early church when they understood that this is Jesus Christ. They didn't have a, deal, a developed theology of, uh, of, the, of the Eucharistic presence, such as Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics gave in the Middle Ages, such as adopted in whole pretty much by the Council of Trent. But they, under, they understood it. And so during the late Middle Ages, even in, Aquin- in Aquinas' time, uh, there were there were a couple of mystics, uh, one in particular who said that the Lord wanted this kind of adoration and, and exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, and wanted even more the Feast of Corpus Christi, which had never been practiced in the Church. And after pondering that, the Magisterium went to uh, agree that this ought to be done, that it followed from the theology. And so I don't know precisely when the practice of processions and so on but the celebration of, uh, of a special feast of the Holy Eucharist, Corpus Christi, uh, the exposition of the Holy Eucharist, uh, the exposition of the artifacts of Eucharistic miracles, such as at Orvieto and uh, Lanciano and other places, those go back seven or eight hundred years. So uh, there's a long intermingled history that accompanied the development of the theology. And what happens basically is, as a church, by contemplating a mystery, sees in it something that is uh, very impressive, 
Naturally, devotions and practices follow from that because what you now know demands a response on our part. And so the, the developments in Eucharistic theology, uh, the coincidence of the, of the Eucharistic mystics and so on, all of these things create an environment in the late Middle Ages when there was an explosion of these kinds of Eucharistic practices. And as I said, we're just not as familiar with them in the uh, United States because of our own particular history. Does that help? Yes, sir. I really appreciate your your answer. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. You're very, very welcome. Are we eight, back in the game now, Jack? Eight, we're, we're getting there. 833-288-EWTN <laughs> is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Kate is watching us on YouTube and is, I'm sure, very entertained at this point. Uh, <laughs> and she wants to know, can you speak on why the Ukrainian bishops want Russia consecrated again when St. Pope John Paul II already consecrated Russia? Boy, um, I answered that one at length on Facebook this morning. And I think it's it follows from a lot of things that I've observed in the last 40 years and believed. The reason is a consecration is something, if we think about the consecrations we do, a lot of people do, as I do and others do, you do the De Montfort consecration by 30 days, 33 days preparation. Uh, you make that consecration in a formal fashion, sometimes with the reception of a priest of that consecration. But then you renew it every year. Uh, at the Easter, uh, Easter liturgies, uh, especially at the vigil, we renew our baptismal consecration. That's what our baptismal baptism is. It's a consecration being turned over to Christ. And we renew that. We renew our baptismal vows and all of that. So renewing of consecrations is a very Catholic thing. We're human beings. We live in time. We get distracted. We need that constant reminder. That's why many people do a morning offering every single day. It's a consecration of that day to Christ. And we never get tired of needing to do that. And the Lord doesn't get tired of us doing that either. So, with regard to the consecration of Russia, if you look at the history of consecrations, and we have this material in our EWTN online library, you might put in consecration, Russia, words like that in the search engine to bring those up. We have a timeline of when the different ones were done. The history is quite clear. First, in 1917, Our Lady said she would come to ask for the consecration of Russia and also for the five first Saturdays. There's sort of a hierarchical thing to be done, and then there's a Catholic faithful thing to be done. The hierarchy was to do this. The faithful was to do the five first Saturdays of that reparation. But she was going to come and ask for those. In the 1920s, she did. We, she brought, came to Lucia, uh, Lucia and she uh, asked for the, con for the five first Saturdays. And in 1929, she came to her and said, now I've come to ask that Russia be consecrated, that by this means uh, she would cease to spread her heirs. And so 1929 is a very important date. This information was conveyed to her spiritual director, eventually to the bishop, and eventually to Rome. Now, during the course that all of this dilly-dallying was going on, in the early 30s, uh, our Lord himself said to Lucia that why hasn't this consecration been done? If you think about it, if in the 1920s and 30s 
Russia had been converted, changed from this atheistic path, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. The Spanish Civil War, the spread of Marxism, of communism to Spain, 30,000 Catholics were martyred. I think those are only the ones that are counted as some category of formally canonized martyr. Priests, religious, lay people, catechists, and others. So that would have been prevented. And there's a whole history of uh, Lucia's and the Lord's and Our Lady's dialogue and Lucy's dialogue with uh, bishops in Spain and Portugal about the need to do the consecration for those countries. And of course, they didn't. And what happened? Took over. We know we have this wonderful documentary on EWTN, The Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, describes in detail how in the 1930s this ideology made its way into Germany, and from Germany it made its way into the academies in the United States, the universities and colleges. Communism became a big thing. It was all theoretical. It wasn't going to become practical in any way. Uh, Nobody was inclined in the 30s in the United States to become communist unless they're ideologues unless they're academics living in their head and they get some of these pie-in-the-sky Marxist communist ideas in their head and they, wow, we're going to reform the entire world and change everything. Of course, we're going to use the big stick to do it. So it didn't have the impact in America, but it had began to have that and we're reaping that fruit today. So we have two tracks. We have what could have been done if it had been done early and that stopped dead in Russia. That didn't happen. It did spread. There's no question about that. Now we see in the literature, and not just for uh, things said to Sister Lucia mystically in prayer, but things said to Alexandrina da Costa, who lived in northern Portugal in, uh, near uh, Porto, uh, and is sometimes called the fourth apostle of Fatima for her relationship and promotion of the message of Fatima. She was being told in the 40s to have uh, the world consecrated to the Immaculate Heart. And so by this time, Pius XII had gotten both of those sort of chain of messages, one through Sister Lucy about consecrating the world, the Immaculate Heart with the special mention of Russia, one through Alexandrina da Costa. They ended up in Rome, and he did it in 1942. And then in 1952, he consecrated Russia by name. And then in in the 1960s, at the Second Vatican Council, Paul VI did, without mentioning Russia and without being in union with the bishops. And then after recovering from his assassination, John Paul II did in 1982 in Fatima. I was there for that. And in 1984 together with all the bishops in St. Peter's Square with the statue of Our Lady from Fatima, they consecrated the world of the Immaculate Heart with special mention of those nations which needed to be consecrated. Now, that may be political language in a fashion, not to insult particular countries, uh, and, and that was done. And at first, neither the Pope, or at least the Pope wondered, did this satisfy the consecration, Even Sister Lucia wondered, did it satisfy the consecration? But then she was told by the Lord that it did, and God would keep his word. And what happened between 84 and uh, about 87, and uh, officially in 1989 on Christmas Day, the Soviet Union fell, and that atheistic, militant atheistic state converted 
using a Portuguese word and a Latin word to convert, to turn around, based on that consecration. Now, did they all just suddenly say, let's become Roman Catholics and honor the Pope as the head of the church? No, they didn't do that. But religion was given a space. And that brings us down to today. And I think when we get back, we can talk about what a consecration of Russia would mean today and what it might result in. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Great new offering from EWTN Publishing for the month of March. You shall stand firm, preserving the faith in an age of apostasy, by our good friend Father William Casey, Father of Mercy. In this riveting book, it's a clarion call to Catholics to begin truly to understand and live the faith, speak the truth, and share it. You will find uh, four fundamental facts of our existence and four ways to experience God's healing, peace, and mercy. Um, Challenging and enlightening, it exposes the horrors of communism, the ideology that is uh, visibly engulfing the West and other parts of the world as we speak. But check it all out in You Stand Firm, Preserving the Faith in an Age of Apostasy by Father William Casey, available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. And... um, Check it out there. 833-288-EWTN. couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls. Next up is, well, actually, we were going to finish, well, we're gonna up finish the, the other the half answer of that to question. the other question yeah. about what yeah. consecration looks like today. Right. And uh, I brought us up to uh, the consecration that took place in March 25th, 1984. And the question is always being raised, was that legitimate? Did it really count? It didn't mention Russia by name, as if God is a fundamentalist and requires that it be followed exactly. We have Lucia's word that he accepted it and that there would be a result. And here's the result. On March 25th of 84, the consecration was made. On May 13th, there was a large crowd in Fatima praying the rosary for peace. Um, Another time I was in Fatima for, for something. And uh, on that very day, the Soviet naval base uh, munitions uh, in for the northern fleet that were stockpiled uh, up near Severomorsk, I think it's pronounced, uh, blew up. And the ability of the submarine fleet to do certain things which they were trained to do, if called upon to do it, uh, was taken away. Now, the context in this is, of course, that the Brezhnev regime was... Uh, we think in retrospect, prepared to go to nuclear war. In the Navy, uh, in the 1970s even, we knew the Russians were doing these worldwide ocean exercises, OKNs as they were called. Their purpose was to take out the carrier fleet in an instant, uh, which would have severely dampened uh, the ability of the United States to respond to a Soviet attack. Uh, We know that all these preparations were there. They had 10,000 tanks in Europe in the uh, early 80s. Brezhnev was dying. You expected the last uh, dance of a dying man. And in the midst of this, a consecration is made. The munitions blow up. Uh, December of that year, the, uh, the mastermind of the invasion plans of Western Europe, the defense minister, dies suddenly. 
Uh, in the following year, uh, Chernyenko takes over as chairman, and then uh, just uh, sometime after that, Gorbachev, uh, or Chernenko dies, who took over from Brezhnev, and then uh, Chernenko dies in March of 85, and Gorbachev becomes, and we get the uh, opening that uh, Gorbachev made possible. In 86, we had the Chernobyl nuclear uh, reactor meltdown, uh, basically salting in the Ukraine, <laughs> salting the in, f- traditional invasion pathway with uh, radioactivity, making uh, that very difficult. And in May of 88, an explosion wrecked the only factory that made the rocket motors for the Soviets' advanced uh, rocket, which could have delivered uh, long-range nuclear missiles with multiple warhead, multiple re-entry warheads, basically targeting multiple areas from a single missile because it had uh, several little warheads, which were then also programmable for different destinations. So all of that happened and then the Soviet Union fell. The West was, uh, the Eastern Bloc was opened up. There was a consecration, there was an effect which is demonstrable. Gorbachev recognized it. Secular, unbeliever, know the role that John Paul II made in all of this, both in his religious visits to Poland, uh, in his uh, courage of facing down this enemy, all of these things working together, and the Soviet Union as a nuclearized atheistic power came to an end, and the people of Russia became free to practice their Russian Orthodoxy or their Roman Catholicism, as some do. Uh, And so all of that came about. Consecrations are effective. Now, what's new about today? We have a religious Russia. Now, I'm not saying Putin is a good Orthodox or anything like that. But we have a religious people with a sense of themselves. And Putin laid this out here a week or so ago to the Duma, their their, uh, parliament. And that is, this is about the patrimony of the Russian people and recovering it. And they've always considered these lands, and he put forth the arguments why they do, places like the Ukraine. There are other places they would like to recover. They consider this the patrimony of Mother Russia, just as a secular battle, as the czars did, going back to the imperial days. So in a certain sense, that, that view, that uh, viewpoint, has continued from czarist Russia to Soviet Russia to uh, oligarchical Russia, if you want to call it that. And so this is what we're dealing with today. And so the fruit of a consecration might be this, and that is the greatest wound in Western Europe is not the First World War, it's the Second World War. It's the Great Schism. It's the Reformation. It's the breaking up of the European Christian heritage, heritage from the Urals to the Atlantic. And we have in the Catholic mystics who are approved by the church, not the people making claims today, but in those approved by the church, the view that this will be healed and the church, a unified Christianity, will be able to continue the evangelization, which has not been completed. This is not the second coming. It may be looking forward to a time when We can complete that evangelization, which our Lord himself prayed for at the Last Supper. He prayed that the 
the apostles and all the successors of the apostles would be one that the world might believe. They are not one. Some are Russian Orthodox. Some are Greek Orthodox. These are successors of the apostles too. Some are Roman Catholic, obviously. The church needs to be unified in order to evangelize the rest of the world. And, as the Catechism notes, to bring about the conversion of the Jews, also which must happen before the end of the world. So we can hope that maybe what is turning into at least implicitly a sort of a religious war with the Russian Orthodox, the Ukrainian Orthodox, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the, the Latin Church, you know, all fighting uh, has been, was described in a great CNA article that people can go read today, the Catholic news agencies, uh, a religious war or a fratricidal war. The Ukrainians are united. They've come to a certain accommodation in Ukraine among the different religious uh, groups. But here come the Russians, and they want, they want a different approach to things. So we can hope that what a consecration would bring about, as now the Ukrainian bishops have asked for, would bring about this kind of a, of a unity, if not immediately, obviously. God works in his own time. He uses us to instruments to do that. This isn't magic. Nobody's going to suddenly become, you know, but God is sovereign, Maybe there will be some remarkable sign that is as remarkable, if not more so, than the, the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union. We don't know what can happen. We do our part, and one part of that could be the consecration of the Ukraine and Russia has been requested uh, to the Immaculate Heart with the purpose of peace there. And I would look at it more as secular peace is important, but wealth and freedom is not as important except religious freedom as the ability to evangelize and to live the faith. And that is what needs to be obtained here. And for that, a new consecration is worth doing. Just as it's worth renewing our baptismal consecration every year, uh, renewing our Marian consecration every March 25th or whatever date you've chosen to do it. So I think there's a great deal of value in doing that. And I hope that maybe the Holy See and maybe the uh, the Ukrainian bishops have asked for it. I would hope that there might be a universal response in the church to that, because it can't hurt. It turns to Our Lady and says, we need you. Please act. And she will. I believe it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is George, driving through the great state of Kansas, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. George, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you, mister, and I wish you a good day. Uh, I have a an honest question. Uh, I've been reading through in the Bible Ezekiel eight sixteen, when the prophet was taken in vision, and they were in the temple worshiping toward the sun. Now, I was I heard about Lent, and uh, isn't that the same thing worshiping the sun? I'm just curious. It depends on how you spell sun. If you mean S-U-N, yes. If you mean S-O-N, no. There is a tradition, uh, both among the Orthodox and the Western Church, the Roman Church, that east, where the sun comes up, uh, it represents Christ, because Christ is the light of the world, and where does the sun come up in the east? And so, on the basis of that... The tradition had developed of celebrating the Mass with the priest facing east towards Christ. So it's symbolism. 
Uh, now, I'm not sure. I, I would have to look up this Ezekiel uh, 8.16 that you mentioned uh, and see just exactly what is implied there. Obviously, there was in Israel the fault of the falling, r- sort of lapsing into paganism. Uh, the men would marry Canaanite wives and they would adopt their wives. Uh, the great example of that is Ahab and Jezebel. You know, here you've got a, a king of Israel, or at least of the ten tri- northern tribes, and he uh, lapses into paganism because his wife has the prophets of Baal and others, and so Ezekiel is fighting against them. So I think that is what is um, uh, what is uh, at stake in the in those passages, probably. And there were other times when uh, Israel was accused of returning to the to their idols. The Lord speaks of it as a, an adultery, having other wives. Um, and so it, it's a simil- similar to that. Uh, so I think the context means everything. Certainly in Christianity, nobody sees that as anything other than uh, the use, the, the eastward direction is anything other as a reminder that Christ is the light of the world. Uh, the sun rises in the east, and that is to us a, a foreshadowing. We have to remember that in God's providence, even the errors of the pagans can contain truth. We have a human nature. Our human nature aspires to certain things. It aspires towards eternal life, whether, you know, even secular people don't want to die. In fact, they're doing, they're frantically trying not to die. Health programs and all the medical treatment it takes to hold on to that last grip of life. And this is built into us. Uh, so that longing for eternity is a longing for God, even for those who don't know God. Uh, that invention of the gods and goddesses of the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and uh, the Hindus and others uh, is all parting that, that deification of, cre- of uh, creation uh, and the elements of creation, even though it is not true, represents this understanding that there's, there's more than man and there are things greater than man. The fathers of the church called this the semini verbi, the seeds of the word, that are in our nature is implanted these truths. These truths seek expression. They get expressed wrongly, but there's always some seed of truth in that. The worship of the stars and the planets becomes then a recognition of things greater than us, that the cosmos is governed by forces that are beyond our understanding and control. We, through revelation, know what those forces are or know what that force is. They didn't have that advantage. So we can, we can see in those historical references symbolic representations of that which we know by truth, by divine revelation, uh, and we can put into proper language as to what is at stake in terms of the powers of the cosmos and what does the sun represent. And even going the back to the beginning of, of creation, God does from the beginning plan things, and everything has meaning. From the beginning, he knew that Christ would become incarnate. From the beginning, he knew the woman who, from whom Christ would become incarnate. That is her role, chosen from all eternity to be the mother of the word incarnate. From the beginning, he knew that man impressed by the Son could be taught about the divine Son, the Son of God, through those natural imagery and so on. And he used those things. And when the 
priests and the clergy went and evangelized peoples, they could use those things to explain the gospel to them. And they did. Those are the seeds of the word, the semini verbi, which point to Christ and are fully uh, realized in Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Bill in Jupiter, Florida. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bill, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. My my uh, question has to do with the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, or as we mm-hmm. used to call it, extreme unction, or uh, the last rite. As I understand it, and I could be wrong, but as I understand it, there are four parts to the sacrament. There's confession, there's Holy Communion or the Viaticum, there's the anointing. But my question centers around the fourth part, the apostolic blessing. And the apostolic blessing itself, it says that part of the, part of the prayer seems to promise the remission of all punishment for those who receive the apostolic blessing. Uh, is that, but yet, in the book of the Catholic Church, which lists all of the different indulgences, plenary and partial, it's not mentioned. So it's mentioned in the Apostolic Prayer, but not mentioned in the Book of, um, um, uh, of Indulgences. Right, the Collection of Indulgences, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, could, you, could you explain that, and I have a sure. follow-up question. Okay. Yeah, first of all, the last rites refer to those four things. There are at least three sacraments in there that you mentioned. One is Viaticum, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Two is Sacrament of Reconciliation, Penance or Confession, and the third is the uh, uh, what used to be called Extreme and No Extreme Unction, because it was saved for the individual in extremis, in danger of death, and is a sort of a catch-all for other situations today, such as the aged and the frail, who... Frankly, I'm, I'm beginning to understand why that's seen more as always in danger of death in some fashion as I get older. So you have three sacraments there, and then finally the apostolic pardon. The apostolic pardon is something that is coming to us and has its authority through the promulgation of the rites and not through the incredian of indulgences. The incredian of indulgences, the collection of indulgences, uh, promulgates those prayers and things and activities, whether it's prayer, whether it's the first blessing of a, a new priest or something like this, uh, all of these things which are that come at, uh, with an indulgence attached. And an indulgence always has conditions attached, and that's also true of the apostolic pardon. A person who is given all the sacraments receives them cravenly, you might say, in other words, fraudulently, you know, saying saying things as if they mean it, but really they're not really. Obviously, we would not say they're, in, they're not absolved from their sin. Uh, their communion with sacrilegious anointing of the sick does them no good, and neither were the apostolic pardon. So the disposition of the individual is what is key, and that's what's key in an indulgence as well. So in that way, there's no difference between an indulgence and the apostolic pardon. The person who is unremorseful and desirous of the forgiveness of God and open to that grace will receive the grace. The person who is not, who places the obstacle of their own will, well, we know God does not force our will. So, yes, an apostolic blessing, fruitfully received, and boy, if you're not fruitfully receiving something at the hour of your death, getting ready to face Christ, I don't know when you would be, I'm thinking more more times and most of the times that has the effect that it intends, and that is through the authority of the Pope, 
the remission of all the temporal punishment due to forgiven sin is granted to the individual, which wipes the slate clean. And in that way, it's no different than when somebody, an adult, is baptized and all their, they don't need a confession as well. All their mortal sins are removed. All of the punishment due to sin is removed. So uh, there is, it's the same, but it's different. The one is a rite promulgated in the sacramental rituals. The other is in the collection, which collects a variety of prayers and practices which are indulgenced by the church. Uh, but the meaning is intentionally the same. The disposed person receives it. The non-disposed person does not. There's nothing magical or automatic about it to the person who is placing their will between God's grace and their soul. Be sure to check out Vatican Insider this Saturday, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, with an encore at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And this week there's a special on the Lenten Station Churches. That's Vatican Insider, Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is John in North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. He's a first-time caller. John, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I, I had a question. So a friend of mine recently told me that he believes that he's transgender, and I want to support him and love him as much as I possibly can, but I'm just not quite sure how to respond to him, <laughs> respond to him telling well, me this. So. Uh, let me ask you, and hopefully he's told you the answer. What in his mind does that constitute? When he says, I'm transgender, does that mean he's neither male nor female? He's some third, fourth, or fifth gender? Or that he's a male who's really a female? Yeah, he doesn't feel that he's male or female, somewhere in between. Yeah. Well, we're all somewhere in between. I think you got, you know, we're, we're framed in this country and in the West generally today, culturally, by the Hollywood depiction of coquettishness in women and this sort of hyper-masculinity in men, you know, who can throw barbells around the gym and do these things, as if that constitutes male and female. The purpose, and I, one, one thing I don't ever understand, having been trained in biology and getting a degree in it, is what is the genetic advantage and where is the genetic basis of saying that transgenderism is is a real something real so for example why do we why do we have sexes we don't need the sexes for friendship we can have friends with whomever you can have a be a friend of your wife with your wife you can have a friend with other women or or friends with other men friendship doesn't need sexuality sexuality has one purpose now the purpose is not pleasure what well, there would be no uh, advantage to to evolution. Let's say you believed in the God evolution. What's the advantage to evolution to having, uh, you know, to having a pleasure alone by itself, unattached to any other purpose, as the, ba- as the, the basis driving the division into the sexes? None whatsoever. There's no genetic, there's no evolutionary advantage unless, you know, I guess, you know, if, it, if something made you happier, uh, even with food, we see this distinction. Food provides nutrition. Some food tastes good, some food doesn't. We eat the good-tasting stuff more than we eat anything that doesn't taste good. So the pleasure of eating is attached to the necessity of eating. Likewise with sex and sexual pleasure and with reproduction. 
The pleasures and all of those things are associated with the sexual division, which are ordered to one purpose primarily, and that is they're ordered to the reproduction of the species. This is the genetic basis of gender and of sexuality. Now, within that, yes, personality-wise, there are a variety of what biologists would call phenotypes. There's the high, masculine male, there's the sort of girly male, there's the more masculine woman, and there's the very, you know, super feminine woman. There's a, there's a spectrum of things there. Those aren't genders, those are personality types. The sexual distinction is ordered to one purpose, reproduction. Now, we are so fixated in our culture today by the non non-evolutionary purpose, the non-rational purpose, and that is merely the pleasure of it. That would say, I made, my life is made for video games and not for doing anything productive with it, and everybody else has to supply my needs because I am made for video games. Well, that would be nonsense, and people would tell you that's nonsense. People need to tell people who think they are transgender, you're not transgender, you're a male, you're made for one thing. Now, you may be attracted to things that aren't going to be fruitful for you or fruitful for the human race. That's your personality. That's something else going on in you. But get over it. Deal with it. The point of fact, too, that psychiatrically, despite the noise you hear in the culture, history shows that the kinds of things that transgenders try to do to fulfill themselves are not productive of their goal of happiness. Quite the contrary. The suicide rates and many other things which follow from, from the transgender movement uh, of the affection, of the, especially the procedures of the lifelong drug therapy, are not productive of the thing that they will. He needs to reflect for a very long time on this idea that he is transgender. Colin, have a great weekend. You as well. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matthew Bensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday. We're back at it again on Monday. Until we get together then, God bless.